Alright, so we're going to pick up our Genesis series today. Uh, if you were with us back at the beginning of 2020, um, you might remember that we started a series in Genesis and we got through chapters 1 and 2, um, and then we left off at the beginning of chapter 3. Um, so as Taylor said, I'm going to give you a 10 minute homily here at Zoom Church, um, and then there's a, a full length podcast that's going to be made available later in the day. Um, where uh, you can watch me struggling with all the really difficult questions and problems in this passage. So we're just going to look at the first seven verses. And uh, this, as we all know, is the moment in the Bible story where everything goes wrong. Alright, so um, if a Greek comedy has the shape of a situation being set up and then upset and then reset... Uh, all those things happen in the Bible story, but in a very unbalanced way, because God takes just two chapters to set up the world, to make the whole universe in all its dazzling perfection. Then Satan and the humans take just seven verses to upset everything, to ruin everything and unmake what God made. And then after this, it takes God another 1,186 chapters to make the world right again. So the reset of everything uh, is by far the biggest part of the story. But these other seven verses at the beginning of Genesis 3 are hugely important. Uh, as, as simple and as innocuous as they might seem, they were a cataclysm. Right? This was the greatest disaster that ever befell the earth. It was far worse than COVID-19. Uh, it was far worse than the Second World War. Uh, or the Black Plague, or any asteroid impact that's ever hit our planet. None of those things even register on the scale of terribleness against this little short conversation and garden picnic. Because the whole Earth, in a very real sense, died on this day, and everybody on the Earth died too. Um, And all the suffering in the world since was seeded from this tree. Um, So I believe that this story is history, that this is an event that really happened, um, and it makes uh, it so much more of an important story that we believe that it's a true part of our history, not a myth or a fable. When we study this passage, every detail of it counts. Um, So today I want to look at it from three angles, first from the woman's perspective, then from the serpent's, and then finally from the man's. So first the woman. When we look at the role of the woman in Genesis 3, uh, we find that rebellion against God doesn't actually begin on the serpent's tongue. It begins in the human heart. And we see that in Eve, because she was questioning God's character before the snake even showed up. And it's important that we see that. So if we look at the passage in Genesis 3, 1-7, we see that this whole conversation actually happens standing right there by the forbidden tree. That's where the serpent finds the woman in this story. I think the uh, pictures in the children's storybooks get this one right. They always show this conversation happening right at the tree. Because in verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she reached out and took of its fruit. She didn't have to move. She wasn't led anywhere else because she was already right there. She had all of Eden to freely explore. But she was to be found in the one place in the whole garden that had a prohibition. So that's the first indication that all was not well with her heart. But there are others in these few verses. A second one is that Eve is very careless with the word of God. So uh, back in verse 3, the serpent misquotes God to her uh, and 
he says, did God really say you shan't eat from any of the trees of the garden? Um, and the woman tries to correct him with what God had actually said, but she really blunders it. Um, she says, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Um, and when we look at, back at what God had actually said in chapter 2, that really isn't what he said at all. <laughs> There's some serious mistakes there. Um, Eve had been uh, not treasuring God's word in her heart. She treated it carelessly. So that was the second reason to think all was not well. And then thirdly, uh, the woman finally gave in to the words of the servant, serpent, not because they were persuasive and not because they were authoritative. In the end, it was really because her own heart agreed with him, which is what the text says. So verse 6 says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So it tells us what her heart was doing in that moment. And the word for delight in this verse implies a really strong temptation like lust. So her final motivation for the act was an internal one, not an external one. It was her own desire. So, and we must recognise this because we're all just like her. Um, and uh, the serpent exerted no pressure on her whatever. He lied to her, but not with any authority. He didn't appear to her as a glorious angel to command her. He came to her as a humble snake, as her creaturely subordinate. And he merely exploited a desire that was already there in her heart. So that's the lesson of the woman. That rebellion against God doesn't begin on the serpent's tongue. It begins in the human heart. But now second, we also see that the serpent's tongue certainly has a major part to play. First one says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he spoke to the woman. And this is probably the strangest part of the whole story, if we're talking about history. Who was this serpent? Where did he come from? And how on earth could he talk? Um, and all of those are great questions, and I wrestle with all of those in the podcast. But for now, I just want to say that the Bible identifies this serpent as Satan. The same deceiver who tempted Jesus in the wilderness much later on. And everywhere we meet Satan in the Bible, we find him doing the very same thing using cleverly targeted lies to undermine people's confidence in the word of God. And the reason that Satan's lies work on us is that they reflect our own wishful thinking. They flatter our pride and they give us a set of rules that we really prefer to God's rules. So in the garden, Eve was tempted. She was already tempted to eat the forbidden fruit because it looked delicious. It was desirable in her eyes. And all Satan had to do was come along and change the rules to make that okay. And he, all he had to do was to slightly twist what God had really said in order to sow mistrust in God's character um, and then tempt her to do what she wanted to do anyway. So in the passage, it's, it's really only two moves to checkmate. Um, move one, the Satan says, uh, did God actually say you shall not eat any tree in the garden? And he's subtly turning God's lavish generosity there into stinginess, right? He's making God seem like a holdout. And then move two, 
He flatly denies what God has said and he says, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he's tempting her own pride, her own sense that she deserves more and she's going to take it. And he does it by impugning a false motive on God for why he said they shouldn't eat the fruit. The idea is that God's holding out on you. He's saving the best part for himself. And he doesn't really want your good. And that worm on the hook was exactly what the woman wanted to eat. It flattered her pride. It confirmed her own suspicions. And she was only too glad to snap at it. So she was caught. So the woman had a huge role to play in this disaster. And so did the serpent. But now finally, so did the man. It was the man's fault too. And one of the really big surprises in this story comes at the end of verse 6, where it says, She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. So Adam only shows up in this passage after the damage is already done. But we find out that he'd been there the whole time. He was right there when Eve sidled over to the forbidden tree and right there when a snake started talking to her. And he was right there when his wife fumbled God's command that he had her directly for himself. And he was right there when she reached up and picked the fruit. And at no point in any of those proceedings did he do or say anything. He just let all of that happen right in front of his eyes without lifting a finger. And we have to ask, what difference might Adam have made in this story if he'd stepped in at any point and done anything to help his wife? But he was reprehensibly passive, wasn't he? Well, the whole world was unmade before his eyes. Now, let's contrast Adam in the garden with Jesus in the wilderness, because both of them met this same Satan. Adam and Eve were together in a paradise when Satan came to them, but Jesus was alone and starving in the desert. Jesus was in the ultimate quarantine. Absolutely no social contact, no groceries of any kind, and absolutely no toilet paper. Adam and Eve were tempted once and they collapsed. But Jesus was tempted three times with much more skillful misapplications of God's own word, and he stood firm. So we need to ask, how did Jesus do it? And the answers are that first, he guarded the purity of his heart towards his father, so that unlike Eve, the devil's shortcuts just had no appeal to him. Second, Jesus cherished God's word. He read it and studied it and memorized it and loved it. And he had his father's word ready on his tongue. So that unlike Eve, he was able to quote God accurately and to draw out a polished sword for the battle. And third, Jesus took action, unlike Adam, and refuted Satan's lies. He didn't leave a single falsehood uncontradicted so that no evil seed was allowed to take root. And so the devil had to flee from him. Now, our hope is not that we can do this too, (laughs) right? Thanks be to God, that is not our hope, because our hope is that Jesus has done it for us on our behalf. He has defeated Satan on our behalf. And Paul talks in Romans 5 and says this, that just as we all inherited death, through Adam's disobedience. Now we can all inherit life through Jesus' obedience. 
And we can be saved from all the times that we've behaved exactly like Adam and Eve. And that's our only real hope, because all of us are really just like our first parents. The apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. And Satan remains our fierce enemy, who's really far too strong for any of us, except for the daily help that we receive from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So our prayer is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But as we continue that fight today, we can draw help from Genesis 3, because there are three lessons. The lesson of the woman is that our hearts are weak, and we need to carefully guard our love for God and his commandments. The lesson of the serpent is that lies are dangerous. They are the most dangerous thing in the world. But they're also pretty obvious, because Satan's lies give us permission to do what we want to do instead of what's right. That's the way we recognize them. And as a result, the third, the lesson of the man, is that as far as it lies in our power, we must guard the truth, learn the truth, teach the truth, and defend the truth. So that means we don't allow any untrue thing to be spoken in our presence without correcting it, without offering a gentle and loving correction. So, for our time in breakout groups now, I'd like us to think about truth and lies with these two questions. Where do you think the truth is in most danger in your own heart and in your community? And second, which of God's commands to you does your heart most need to hold on to 